You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance. What's up, Performance Therapy Nation? This is Mike Quintins, your host of the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ken Kearns, a board-certified, fellowship-trained, shoulder-and-elbow orthopedic surgeon who specializes in arthroscopic surgical procedures, joint replacements, minimally invasive procedures, as well as upper extremity fracture care from clavicle to the elbow. Today, we'll be discussing sports medicine as, as it relates to different procedures, common sports injuries, and what brought Dr. Kearns to this field. Uh, but before we get into all that, I want to thank our listeners and subscribers for their support as we are officially into season three. If you haven't already, please go to the bottom of the page on your iPhone, Android, uh, or iPad, hit the five-star rating, and tell us why you enjoy listening to the podcast. The 30 seconds it takes to do this allows us to get more listeners that have the same interests you do. Your satisfaction in the content we create means the absolute world to us. Now, a little background about our guest today, Dr. Ken Kearns. Originally from Ohio, Dr. Kearns completed his undergraduate studies at Colby College in Maine, where he played hockey, then on to medical school at the University of Toledo, School of Medicine, next stop, orthopedic residency program at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. While a resident, Dr. Kearns was recognized by several orthopedic organizations for his research and leadership. Last stop, Dr. Kearns didn't uh, go far for his fellowship. He was accepted to the internationally renowned Thomas Jefferson University Hospital slash Rothman Institute Shoulder and Elbow Orthopedic Fellowship Program. It's a mouthful. Yeah, it uh, is. <laughs> Dr. Kearns has been published in numerous specialty medical journals on topics specifically related to rotator cuff tears, shoulder instability, and shoulder replacement. Philadelphia hand and shoulder since 2016 after spending a few years in New York in a private practice. It is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kenneth Kearns. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite an intro, man. What do you think? Uh, it was a lot. You know, I, I first thought you were all doing my memorization, but you know, <laughs> no you're, not that, you're not that good. <laughs> no, that is very true. I'm not that good. But this is, I mean, you've done so much in Philly. You know, from your residency and, and playing hockey, you played hockey up in Maine, but your residency, your fellowship. So uh, I kind of want to get into your background and, and education, and then we can move on to some more exciting stuff. Absolutely. But, but tell me about what led to your career path and, and what about those experiences kept you in Philly? It's so cliche if you, you know, so we interview fellows and it's, you have to read their personal statements and you read these personal statements and everyone has the same thing. I was an athlete. I liked orthopedics. I went into it. So, but mine was not that much different. I grew up in, originally from Cleveland, grew up in Toledo. Down the street was an orthopedic surgeon. He was a good Irish Catholic man. He had eight kids, and we all played hockey together. And so we became good friends. My first job was working in his office during the summers, and then I, my nickname was Dr. Bones. <laughs> and then it's like, again, it's like, so I was like, all right. So I started, he started taking me to surgery in high school. I worked in, his, in the front desk, so I've done the, the hello good w window, the goodbye window. I, I've kind of seen that end of, uh, of orthopedics. And then I just like, all right, well, maybe this is real. And I was always like, well, if I can't play professional hockey, which is, you know, if you saw me, you'd know that was the, the likelihood that was pretty slim to none. Um, I was like, all right, I'll do this orthopedic thing. But I was kind of like, all right, every, orthopedics is a bad rap in medicine. You're not real doctors. 
Um, really? That's what, is, is that you how didn't know that? Not, I don't. I mean, I completely disagree with that. But I, okay, I got in, you. In the medical world, I literally someone told me this the other day. I was like, "Well, you know what orthopedics is. You guys are like." I go, "You can say it." And they're like, "Yeah, you guys aren't like the real doctors." Interesting. So that's, that's fascinating. We're considered like you know carpenters that work on people. Well, listen, I've been in those rooms before, and it's like ACDC's jamming or Metallica, <laughs> Kenny G in your case. <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised. I remember once with one of my mentors. I won't mention his name because I don't want to offend him. He's a local, but literally the anesthesiologist told him, "He's like, doctor, can you please turn down your music? I cannot hear my instrumentation." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I guess it's important to like hear what the heartbeat's doing." <laughs> Oh, but it is like bones flying around like, but, but it's a little bit, but I told someone the other day, I had a patient the other day who was a huge Grey's Anatomy fan and full disclosure, I still watch Grey's Anatomy. My wife the other day was on and she was like, it was on her DVR. She's like, you are, are you still watching this? I was like, I know you don't even watch it. So I just deleted it. But yeah, I'm still watching it. <laughs> and then we started talking about it. It's like, well, what do you think about Callie? If you, I don't know if you watch Grey's. But Callie, I, it's been a long time. My, Cal- my wife's an avid watcher. Callie was the Grey's, the orthopedic surgeon and I was like, you at least make us look good. I mean, what she was doing looks so terrible. I was like, there is precision in what I do, but she looks like she's like jackhammering or breaking down a wall. I was like, no, my, I, there's actually like fine maneuvers, but so she made it look bad. There, I mean, listen, I there are look online. I mean, there are fine maneuvers in, in what you do. That, that's for sure. So, uh, I mean, yeah. for any buddy, orthopedic surgeons, you know, be a good. If you want to tell your parents, this is why I would be a gamer. You do have to have like good hand-eye coordination because I was trying to tell my wife, I go, all right, so. If I'm doing a scope procedure, which we can get into later, but I was like, I'm staring at a screen, my feet are using the pedals, I have one hand on a camera and one hand on the instrument, so I was like, you got to make sure all three work together. And she's like, wait, what? I was like, yeah, I am actually have some ability, you know, I'm coordinated. Uh, the, yeah, the, the technique and coordination is uh, second to none, in my opinion, and a lot's on the line, yeah. maybe, you know, yeah. it's pretty important stuff. Yes. So but, uh, so, I, so we, we got <laughs> off track, but so then... I was it's like, gonna all happen. right, it's going to happen. <laughs> but playing hockey, I've had my old, my fair share of broken bones. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I saw the surgeries. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And then the more I try to stay away from, like, being the, the jock that everyone says that the orthopedists are, I was like, it's what interests me. Um, and so ended up, you know, I kind of got into it. And, and uh, here I am, I guess. Yeah, so tell me about your time at Jefferson University and your time, at, you know, with, with the fellowship. What, what was that like? So... For those in medicine, any specialty right now, patients get annoyed. But I try to tell them, I'm like, look, if you go to see your general practitioner and you got to see a heart specialist, they say go see your heart doctor or go see a kidney specialist. So everything in medicine is getting super subspecialized, especially in the two areas I've practiced in now, Philadelphia and New York. You know, you're talking about big, big cities that they want specialization. Like if you're going to go to a small town, you can probably still see a mom and pop orthopedics, but unfortunately it's a dying breed. Again, a cliche, but the the jack of all trades, master of none. It's I'm always shocked. Still, people that I respect don't know. They know a lot about a little. Um, and I just don't. I just it's like anything. If you don't specialize in that area, you just you just miss things. Or you're just not comfortable with it or familiar with it. But I liked shoulder and elbow because the people who taught me, my mentors at Rothman, you get to be a generalist but still specialize. So I mean, I the youngest patient I've ever operated on, I think, was twelve. Uh, the oldest patient I did an elective shoulder replacement on was 95. Wow. Um, you know, I do. So you get to do you get to do kids, you get to do adults, you do everyone in between, you do trauma, uh, you know, your fractures, you do you do sports related surgeries, you know, from your Tommy John to your instability procedures to, you know, ad- older people like myself and, you know, rotator cuff repairs. And so you get it's again, 
you get to be different, you know, no disrespect to my joint colleagues, but you know, we make fun of them. They're like, Oh, you do, you do two procedures, you know, right knee, left knee. I mean, that's, but that's accurate. Not (laughs) how many, I don't know of many surgeons and I could be completely off base here. I don't know of many surgeons that do joint replacements that also do other procedures such as like, um, on an a- ACLs and I mean I feel maybe there's a handful of I mean them. The, the probably closest but, is sports there's right. there's some sports guys who do that but again sports guys still they still tend to specialize like most sports guys like all right I you know they tend to probably st- most sports guys at least in my area are mostly heavy knee like right most sports guys don't do a lot of they're not usually 50 50 split shoulder knee it's usually probably 80 20 70 30 would you say of of sports injuries that you know surgery related that the most variability is in somewhere like shoulder and elbow you know what I mean like it's not well yeah you're doing you know it may be ankles in there too but no is there a wide range of different procedures that you could do in a given day yeah I mean for the shoulder you talk about you got well you know you have anterior labor repairs you got posterior labor repairs you got superior labor repairs you've got uh, biceps procedures then you've got sports related you've got you know someone separates their shoulder it took me forever honestly i didn't quite understand the difference between like a shoulder separation and an ac separation i was like wait aren't they like the same thing right until i was actually in medicine yep so when you a shoulder dislocation is when the ball comes out of the socket a shoulder separation is when the clavicle kind of moves so you do both of those yeah um, you can do fractures related to those so there's there's definitely a lot of variety. Ton. Did, you, did you even say rotator cuff? <laughs> like, you no, because I mean? like, you know, it, it's interesting. Most cuff isn't really considered sports, sports. per se. It's That's more of kind of like your weekend warrior. Sure. I can tell you. I mean, the youngest cuff I've ever done, and I didn't think he was a cuff. He was probably he was. I don't remember if he played college ball, but he was a baseball player, and he was in his like 25. He dove for a ball in the outfield, didn't go well, mm. and I was like. Oh, you definitely dislocated your shoulder. Let's do some therapy. Wasn't getting better. I was like, all right, let's get an MRI. And I was like, all right, let's just see how big your your labral tear is. It came back that he had a full thickness cuff tear. I was like, well, I was not expected to see that. Interesting from a fall like that. I mean, it's possible, but yeah, it's yeah. just not not the yeah, most. Yeah, it's, it's not common. I mean, people right. come in all the time. I was like, I have a cuff tear. I was like, the odds of someone in their twenties having a cuff tear again. I've now operated on two in my almost ten year career. Wow. One was a professional boxer, and then this kid playing baseball. How about it? So you go through now. Can you explain to some of our listeners, like what if how a fellowship is different than a residency? Sure. Right. So, orthopedic residencies, the vast majority are five years. Um, there are some six-year residencies, but that's for research purposes. They usually have a year of research. Some academic institutions have a six-year program, but a lot of people it's sort of dying because, unfortunately, people want to. I mean, it's a long process. I mean, I can't remember what I told my uh, my nieces once. I was like, I. I did 25 years of school. And like, wait, what? Um, it's a lot. So, it's a lot of school. So, so w- one less year sounds a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so people are moving. So it's five years of general orthopedics. Right. Um, and if you wanted to specialize there, you know, I could go through, I think there's eight specialty, subspecialties and shoulder and elbow is the one that I, that I picked. Okay. It just seemed to fit the best for me. And in your fellowship, uh, how long is it was your fellowship? So all orthopedic fellowships are a year. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got it. And then from, from there, so you went to New York Private so, practice up yep. there. Lived in Manhattan for almost four years, and I worked for like, for listeners around this area, it was like a a, a smaller version of Rothman. There are forty five doctors. Gotcha. Okay, so, and came back home. My wife's from the area. She grew up in Havertown, so we moved back when my my wife was seven months pregnant. So that's it. That's a uh, theme on the podcast. Old Delco pride action right there. Oh, yeah. uh, how to, you know Delco comes through Havertown. How to come back home? Oh so. yeah. So <laughs> you know it. it works out well. <laughs> we were all set to live in Long Island, yeah, but uh, Long Island uh, it's an interesting place for those that haven't been there. Good hockey up there. 
it was good hockey. It was, you know, we enjoyed living there. My wife had a good job. We liked the city. Although I'll tell you in like hindsight, I was telling, talking to one of my colleagues who trained in New York and he's from New York. He just went there Sunday for a birthday and he was like, I cannot believe that I almost wanted to come back to New York. And I was like, yeah, we're so glad. I could not have imagined spending COVID in New York City. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, I'd... we had a 740 square foot apartment on the 27th floor. In lockdown. It just sounds horrible. Months. It just sounds horrible. Awful. Yeah. All right, cool. So, all right, so let's go from there then. So you so you come back to Philly. You have you have this opportunity now. You you know, that's in 2016. Yep. And so how long did it take to get, like, into a rhythm? You know, and tell me a little bit about so what I, you do on a day-to-day. So I come back from Philly. I joined the Philly Hand Center, which is the nationally known, internationally known group because some of my partners are kind of groundbreaking surgeons in the hand world. Um, and there were a couple doctors who sort of did a little bit of shoulder um, and Neil Chen is, is who he went back uh, to Boston for f- family issues. And so they sort of had this shoulder void. And when I came back, I was actually talked to one of my buddies at Rothman. I never envisioned coming back to Philadelphia, but I was like, all right, my, my wife, his family has a, has a house down in ocean city and she loves the shore. And I was like, well, let's go live in the shore. And so I talked to my buddy at Rothman and they weren't in the market for a shoulder guy. They just hired someone. And then he's like, but I heard the hand center is quietly looking for a shoulder guy. And so a couple of my partners I was resident with at Jeff and, you know, three months later I had the job and, and we were back. And so they changed the name now it became the Philadelphia hand to shoulder center. Cause now they wanted to kind of be totally inclusive. You know, it's good and bad. It, it took a bit maybe to come back. It's, this is a competitive area sure. uh, to do shoulder elbow. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, I mean, the Rothman Shoulder Department is second to none, right. um, and they're all my friends and and colleagues and mentors. So I did give them all the heads up that I was coming back to the area. That's, that's nice of you. I, I try to be kind. <laughs> um, they were all very gracious. They told my wife, "Thank you for bringing Ken back to the area." <laughs> um, and so, and as one of my mentors always told me, he's like, "Look, he's like, you could open up a sign next door. There's plenty of business to go around. We'll all be fine." That's cool, and I've noticed that even in the PT world, that that is something that um. Uh, everyone is very aware of how competitive it is, yeah. but there, there's a um, small world. Right? 100%. Small world. So yeah, no, no reason to burn any bridges. Amen. Well said. Um, um, and so we came back to the area. Then, uh, you know, things have just sort of naturally, I, I don't know. I'm not good at marketing myself. I've never, you know, Lori, she'll probably hate me for saying this, but it's like, you know, oh, you got to go and meet people. I just don't, I don't know. It's hard for me to like, it's like, so for me to sell myself, I'm like, all right, well, that guy sucks. So you should see me. I just, I have a hard time saying that. So I'm kind of like, I don't know. I think I'm good at what I do. <laughs> you know, it's always like one of those, like, well, what is separates you? I go, I don't know. I try to tell people all the time. I'm like, this is what I do for a living. It's not a, who I am. So I think some people just like my personality because I'm not your quote unquote typical doctor. You know, my dad yells at me. I'm supposed to dress a certain way. I'm supposed to shave and all these things that I don't like doing. <laughs> um, but I just, I just like, I guess I'm, I am who I am and, and hopefully people like it. But so then it's, 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 organically I've had, I've grown my practice, which I think is probably the best way to do it. Heck yeah. I, amen. Uh, well said. I think it comes down to, uh, I, I get the marketing piece. That's something that we have to do in PT. It's just uh, hard to sit there and go to someone like, don't go to that therapy group because you know, exactly. exactly. Come to me. Cause I'm, and they're like, well, what do you do? Well, you, cause you have to knock someone else to almost sell yourself. It, it, it almost, um, here I will, we'll get, we can dive into this for a hot second. Cause this is relevant in physical therapy, at least and the same goes for you. When you walk in to meet somebody, they want to know, okay, why are you, like, why are we sitting down talking right now? Well, because I'm a physical therapist and I have this practice and, you know, I want to help your patients. 
like, all right, this is someone else who wants something, wants me to send them, you know, patients or wants me to buy their device or whatever the heck. And it's salesy. And it's, I, and, I, yeah, and I'm I am not a good salesman. No. Well, it's, it makes me uncomfortable because now I feel like you feel like you want me to go. Right. A hundred percent. You're like, to bother you. Right. right. But in the, in the end of, you know, and this is taking a lot of reinforcement and meditation and praying that <laughs> in therapy, uh, other types of therapy that, you know, you're offering value. Right. And it's, and, and that's the tough part and it doesn't make it easy. There are times where you can kind of see some body language. You're like, listen, I get it. You're busy. We'll talk another time. It's well, it goes both ways. You know, if someone comes <laughs> I mean? in to the, to this building to sell you something you're like I'm busy, man, like I got things right. to do. Like let's, you know, so it's just, it's, it's uncomfortable. And some people like that's their thing. Some people I, love it. Some I, people I'm love fine it. with it. If that's what you, I just, I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable. I just, I'd rather not if I don't have to. Hundred percent. But, but like having a casual conversation with you about, you know, like what do you see? I want to learn more about you as a person. To me, that's that's fun. I yeah, I'd rather that. do that. Right. Well, I tell people all the time. My my assistant will yell at me. I go. She's like, you're taking too long. And I was like, I don't know. I'd rather. I mean, the medicine to me is somewhat straightforward and easy. So I'd rather sit there and bullshit about anything that's of interest in your life. I mean, gosh. Today I spent half the time. There was a woman who has um, she's a medical condition that's somewhat similar to something my wife has with their stomach, and we spent fifteen minutes talking about that. I don't know. That was interesting to me. Well said. I think people get stuck in this like this is a medical practice. I got to do my job. I got to check my boxes. I got to get my documentation done. I got to move on. That's not fun. Like that's, yeah. I mean, it's fun, but it's not that. Well, fun. you know, there's you know certain. I mean? There's certain. Stuff. I'm sure it's the same for you. There's certain patients that come in that you know, like look. You see them well enough, or you can read their face. They want to have a conversation, and you're like, look, this person wants to BS, and it's enjoyable. And there are certain people that come in, and they just want to do their thing, and, and they, they are not in the mood or in the time to sit there. And you're like, all right, they can get in and out. So, right. so you can sort of make up ground for people you talk with, the people that don't want to talk to you. So sure. That's how I sort of try to judge it. No, but it, you got I can tell. You love what you do. You're, you're passionate about I it. I like the people. It's, it's the fu- people. I agree. I like the people because it's... My wife doesn't think I talk about it at all, which I, I which baffles me because I wish you could like listen to this because I was like everyone comes in like how are the kids? Let me see the pictures. Like people follow my kids and like people haven't come in a while. Like oh my god, they've grown so because I have a three and a five year old. And they're like oh my god, they've grown so much. And I was like I sit there and I brag and I show pictures and I, and again she thinks I like I almost act like I don't have a family, which I don't know. But <laughs> I don't know what that says about what she thinks about me outside. <laughs> but she also, I, I get it. You're I don't know. She doesn't think I can be serious either. So apparently she thinks that she's, I just wants to watch me work because she doesn't think I have a serious bone. I was like, I can be a professional. I just don't outside of work. <laughs> good for you. I, it's, uh, it's good to be transparent about it. <laughs> I try to be. I was, I told the patient this today. I was like, I try to be as honest as possible. She's like, you weren't lied. I was like, oh, well, I mean, does you know good? I'm not going to lie to you. What is, I mean, you know, you have to have some rapport and, and confidence, respect who you're seeing. Well, that that separates you. I mean, I, I think that separates any, especially an orthopedic surgeon that has that kind of personality. Because the the reality is, and you know, I'll probably get like probably get shunned for this. Not all orthopedic surgeons, like PTs, have great personalities. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know what I mean. Doesn't mean they're not good at their job. Listen, some of the, some of the best ones uh-huh. you can probably attest to that. Some of the best ones. Probably aren't the most people. I mean, again, I, I won't mention names, but we have a close family friend who is, he, he does commercial real estate so he, in, in Cleveland, and he has, he can do things that the average person can't do. But I still remember we were talking about he had to get his hip done, and he was asking for suggestions, and I talked to some of my buddies in Cleveland, and he ended up, he's like, I'm going with what I'm told is the best hip surgeon in Cleveland. He's like, He's a complete a-hole from what I've told. So I literally 
I talked to my friend. He, my friend is like, I'll see you before and after surgery. He met the surgeon. Literally, he said hi when he signed the consent in the holding area, and he never saw him again. And he's like, look, I've heard he's an amazing surgeon. I don't need to be friends with him. I don't need to see him again. And I was like, oh, you know, hey. I say it all the time. I, you know, I've, we get asked that all the time. But what do you think about so-and-so or so-and-so? And I say, listen, I've heard bedside manner may not be the best, may not be their forte, but they're damn good at what they do. Yeah. So, you know. Make you a know, choice. <laughs> not to sit there and say we're not talking marketing myself, but if I'm going to market myself, I mean, that's the difference between me and it. Like, I feel like I can bring both to the table. Sure. So at least I can I can hold a conversation. I can be personable. Well, and some people want that. When they walk into the room, they want to be heard because, you know, some, I've been in those rooms where there's no eye contact, you're looking at a screen, not listening to the patient. Maybe they are listening to the patient, but there's no eye contact. And they're just looking at an image. They're like, okay, so this is what's going on. You have a, you know, whatever tear. And this is how we're going to fix it for you. So we have openings, you know, next Tuesday or Wednesday. And we'll just get you scheduled. I signed a guy up last week, literally. He he saw, he and he didn't even tell me who he saw. He saw another doctor. And he, he came in. He's like, I, he's honest. He's like, he didn't tell me how honest. But he said, I'm just here for a second opinion. I said, okay. I said, and I was telling him, I go, I don't want to know what he or she told you. Let me just, I kind of want to, you know, I don't want to be biased. I said, so I went through, I did the exam, I looked at the MRI, and I, he had a cuff tear. And I talked about the pros and cons of fixing it, the rehab, the recovery, all that fun stuff. And he's like, all right, I want to have surgery with you. I was like, okay. He was like, he's like, yeah, the other doctor, he said kind of the same thing, but you said, explained it way more. You actually had a conversation with me, and I just like you better. And I was like, okay, great. So, so, why, so why, where does that come from for you? The backstory is, and I don't remember, I almost have to ask my mom. There actually is a story, and I'm sure, you know, I think you told me, I can't remember, it was a son or a daughter. Daughter, yeah. So your daughter, there, yeah. so you'll, I'm sure she's already getting a personality at, at her age, and mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, my kids, I can tell my kids, are three and five, I can already tell when they're in a mood or they haven't eaten or whatever, <laughs> but I have. I guess I'm, I'm very moody. Um, my <laughs> wife will agree with that, and you know when I'm annoyed. And so we, I don't remember why. We went to a doctor's office, and this was when I was thinking I wanted to go into medicine. I, I want to say I was in high school. I don't remember, again, what I was seeing this doctor for. I, apparently, I, I shut down. And when I shut down, it's usually because I'm, I'm pissed off. And we get outside, and my mom was like, you didn't like that doctor, did you? And I said, no. And she's like, why not? And I told her, and she's like, just, I think, I feel like he talked down to me. And I guess, you know, real quickly, I mean, something I try to do when, pa- when parents bring in kids even if the kid's five years old, I talk to that kid. Love that. That's the patient. Not The parent's not the patient. The kid's the patient. I'll answer the parent's questions, and sure. I'll engage with them. But I talk to the kid because, you know, you don't need to talk about them. They're right in front of you. So I, so I talk to them. Well so said. I think it was something similar like that. My mom's like, just remember, if you end up becoming a physician, don't ever treat your patients like that's that. That's cool that mom you. brought that up. Yeah. So. yeah that's, a, that's a cool lesson that, you know, uh, she had the perspective and, and wherewithal to kind of bring that up to yeah. you afterwards. Yeah, I mean, and we train fellows, and so we have a, a large fellowship program, so we have seven fellows, and so I always tell the fellows, I'm like, look, you might have given this conversation a million times, but the person across the table, it's the first time they've ever heard it. So you've got to remember that they've never heard this before, and so you've got to, you've got to sit there and take the time and answer their questions. And, yeah, you know, you got other patients waiting, and you got things to do, but, again, they're scared, they're nervous, and, you know, you want to make them feel comfortable. Yeah, sen- sensitivity to what a patient is going through in their lives and – everything they had to go through to get to that chair in front of you. No, hundred percent, you know, and they're making a big decision, you know, 100%. it's going to impact their lives for a long time. Yeah. You know, I mean, right? again, it's, you know, it's, I try to, I don't know, again, my wife and I had this conversation yesterday in the car and I was like, it's just, it's hard to explain if you don't do it, but medicine's very different because you're actually, there's nothing wrong with or different or nothing less of 
you know, from fixing someone's home or fixing someone's car. But when you're fixing someone's, when you're actually working on someone else's body, you know, that's kind of an intimate relationship and they got to trust you. And again, it doesn't have to be a surgeon, it could be a therapist, but you're helping them get better. It's just different. And if you don't do it right, or if you if you are feel like you messed up or you're wrong, it's 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 hard to you know. I tell oh all the time, gosh, yeah. I couldn't tell you, you know, any patient, and I, I don't. I, I love when patients tell me that they're doing well. Those aren't the patients I remember. I remember patients that aren't doing well, or if I don't feel yep. like the surgery was a hundred percent perfect. Those are the ones that just you know bog my mind. I can count on one hand the number of times a patient has walked out of the clinic, like completed their treatment, their visit. And I was like, oh, I wish I had time to do like this, this one more thing with them. Yeah. And that, again, that's, I think I'm fortunate to say that's only on, you know, one hand how many times that's happened, but that's not a good feel. It's, and I can probably name each time. Like I was just, you know, people showed up late or early and it was just like chaos. And, oh, yeah. and it's like, ah, I know they're hurting right now and I want to do one more thing with them. I just, that, that's not a good feeling. Man. But I remember so, like my brother and I were into like the whole like Texas Hold'em was like kind yeah. of a hot thing for a while. But I remember, I forget which gambler said, he's like, I couldn't tell you any. Any of the times I won, I can tell you every time I lost. Yeah, though. right. So hey, remember your losses, not yeah, your wins. Hundred percent. Got it. So, so let's get into your practice a little bit. So, what are some of the common sports injuries that you see? I mean, so again, I I'm a, I specialize in in shoulder to elbow. So you know, sports injuries. You see clavicle fractures. You see uh, shoulder instability. You see AC separations. You don't really see too many proximal humerus fractures in kids. Occasionally, you can. You know. So again, labral, so now it doesn't have to be shoulder instability, you have labral tears, so people think of there's anterior and the posterior labral tears, there's a slap tear that people talk about, that's yep. a lot of overhead throwers mm-hmm. to deal with all that fun stuff. And then if you're going to kind of work your way down to the elbow, uh, you've got your Tommy John, which is your the ligaments on the inside of the elbow, you've got the ligaments on the outside of the elbow. Not sports injuries, more for the weekend warrior. You don't see too many uh, high school, college kids, but you get distal biceps tears that I deal with. And then you have fractures around the elbow. The one you usually see for kids is you have the medial epicondyle fracture. So yep. those are the ones you Yeah, the good old little league elbow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So is there an injury that is more prevalent now that wasn't very prevalent, you know, 10, 15 years ago that, that you see in the office? You're like, damn, I'm seeing a lot of these lately. Honestly, the one that's probably more that if you can think about it, but we talk about it all the time, is probably more the Tommy John. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I remember once I, it was, I was, Back in the area somewhat recently, and there was a kid. Because the difference was, and I don't know if there's a right or wrong, but when I grew up, I played hockey, I played baseball. You know, you have an A team you played on. There wasn't three teams you played on. And now you see kids who play literally all year long, and that's all they do. I mean, so this kid I saw is the first kid I saw who had a Tommy. He, he tore the ligament on the inside of his elbow, his Tommy John ligament, the UCL, and he wasn't even skeletally mature yet. Which I was like, it's wild. And it's wild. He was 14 years old. His yeah. dad was the coach. They had a mound in their basement, and he threw all the time, every day. And it's just like, you know, I still remember once that James Andrews, who's kind of like, you know, a lot of people know his name. Um, I watched him give a talk once on, and and he kind of, as he said, he's like, your arm is not designed to throw a baseball. It's just not. So it's gonna break down. And you know, in theory, you only have so many throws in that arm. And so it's like, the amount of times that kids throw a ball, like. You know, unfortunately, people just think, like, that's what's going to get you there. I mean, people forget whether whatever you believe in, you know, God-given talent or just natural ability. I mean, that's what's going to get you there. I'm not going to say that you can't work hard and get there, but the vast majority of these athletes, and and my brother played professional hockey. I mean, he'll tell you there. The guys, you know, the the stars of the team, those are just the elite players. 
But the average player, they're just all good. They just happen, you know, this, everything sort of fell into place for them. Right. But it's not from playing on 12 teams, you know, all year long. Well, it's, it, and you've seen it in this area in particular. 100%. That, that and I get it's just it's wild. It's, I mean, even, I don't know if you've seen it. I just, I was shocked. I remember even some kids were starting to throw weighted baseballs. So could throw, I go, a baseball's bad enough. Don't throw a weighted baseball. So what happens is, uh, and this is just my perspective, uh, in my opinion, what happens is, is that parents, kids, m- more often than not parents, more often than parents, see something online or on a ESPN, you know, documentary, and this, you know, baseball player who was injured and made a comeback, had Tommy John surgery, and he used weighted baseballs, and he's throwing harder than he ever has. And then, I know I get it in the clinic all the time, hey, what do you think of, like, you know, J straps or what do you think of, you know, or J bands or what do you think of, you know, weighted baseball throwing? And and there's been research on it. James Andrews, Kevin Wilk. Kevin Wilk is is a, you know, one of the main PTs for James Andrews. I've watched James Andrews speak as well as at some PT conferences. And some of the research that's come out has said if you throw ten out of twelve months of the year, you are ten times more likely to experience, you know, a, a Tommy John tear, a UCL tear. It's wild. He said he's got twelve, thirteen year olds waiting at his door like when he gets to work like trying to get surgery and they think they need it or well because everyone throws harder afterwards well that's the crazy thing the fallacy is that people think that they do better and if you actually learn the literature there's only about well first of all you only hear about the big name players and i tell people all the time and you probably tell your patients is is two things one if you really look at the literature probably only about 60 percent of patients actually get back to their pre-injury level yeah you don't hear about the high school player who never plays again you don't hear about the college player who never plays again you don't hear about the minor league player who never plays again you just think like oh that one guy he throws harder still to this day people ask me like well i'm gonna throw harder right i'm like no you're not gonna throw harder i can hope you can throw as hard as you used to but like let's be realistic Manage like, expectations here right yeah and then the other thing i try to tell him i was like look you gotta remember they're a professional athlete that's their job and they have you resources they have you next to them seven days a week right. 24 hours a day doing therapy because that's his job to get that guy back on the field you you know you're you might be a great high school player or a great college player but you don't have 24 7 therapy because that's not your job and so it's just different you don't have the, all the luxuries that they have so, so you're seeing your therapist two or three times a week yeah it's tough and then you know it's communicating between different you know, in that environment, you have the trainer and you have the PT and, you know, everyone's in the same room, essentially. It's very difficult, yeah. uh, I can tell you firsthand. And this environment where you have, you know, five different coaches, you got a pitching coach, you got the baseball coach, you got, you know, the other team, base, the other baseball coach for the you know, the travel team, and then you have the little league team. It's a lot of, you know, uh, hands in a cookie jar. So I speak. mean, you've probably seen them. I mean, again, I, don't get me wrong. I think I think things have changed probably for the better. I mean, you know, if you those that listen and sit there and watch some of these ESPN documentaries. I mean, back in the day on the flights home, they'd drink beer and have steak and smoke cigarettes. You know, nowadays they got their protein shake and they're like, they're <laughs> so things have obviously improved in terms of nutrition and then in terms of technique. I mean, you now have these analytics of showing like proper throwing techniques. You can kind of do all these little, little, little ball things and see your mechanics and make sure you're doing it right. So things have actually obviously improved, but it's just we've taken that transition again, like everything, you, you know, you have to do it to uh, exhaustion. So people now, again, you don't have the person who plays, oh, well, I'm going to play on like the hockey team and I'm going to play on the softball team and the football team. Yeah, and specialization ha- happens so much younger oh, now. crazy. And the awareness is there, but the pressure's there too. Well, everyone's got to be on this elite team. Can't and if you if you don't play the team in the fall, the baseball team in the fall, then we can't guarantee that you're going to make it. All in right, the spring. then you're done. Yeah. 
So I, I got to play in the fall, I guess. So, I, so that's probably, I mean, again, these arms just aren't me to do some of this stuff. So I'd probably say elbow injuries or, or overuse injuries are, are probably the most common thing I see. Okay. So in shoulder procedures, uh, like I, I'm curious about labrum, right? Because there, there are a lot of asymptomatic labral tears out there. So 100%. Speak, right? I think I have one. I mean, mine's, I, I think I have a labral tear on my left shoulder. I try to tell you all the time, like, you don't need surgery in every labral tear. I, I, my, I think I have one on my left one. I've never been proven, but. I get some crunchiness and it hurts and outside for when I try to really lay into a drive, which really hurts sometimes, it doesn't really bother me. Okay. So I'm curious, what, what do you see? Like, what are the clinical, what's a clinical presentation, right? Or even the subjective presentation, if that matters. I mean, to they're you. pretty variable, but what I tell you, I tell you all the time, first you got to remember your shoulder joint, you have more motion in your shoulder than other, any other part of your body. And your labrum is the structure that sort of surrounds your shoulder that helps kind of, it's like, it helps increase the surface area of your shoulder that helps increase your stability. But it can be as, so if you're talking about the anterior labrum, the anterior labrum is 99.99% of the time, your anterior labrum is it's what's involved in shoulder instability. So if you dislocate or subluxate, um, where your shoulder kind of feels like it falls out of the, pops out and goes back in, or a formal dislocation where you have to go to the emergency room and have it put back in, you're tearing the anterior labrum. Like you don't have to get an MRI. We know it's torn. It's just the question is how much is torn. So that's kind of like an anterior labral tear will present itself. A posterior labral tear is a slightly different. You know, we always talk about like, it, it's like if your arm is going backwards. So it's, you know, we always talk about like football linemen who if their arms are going backwards or if you fall forward with your hands outstretched, that's with the shoulders going back. You can get a posterior labral tear. That way, sometimes I'll see kids in the gym, they're really trying to put up some big weights and they're like, I felt something tear. I was like, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, I wonder you could have a posterior labral tear. And then with like the superior labral tear, that's usually like a, a throwing athlete. So, you, you know, the, the classic is, you know, a pitcher or someone in the outfield, you know, they talk about they, they have one throw and they're like, oh, I just felt like it just didn't feel right. And again, the shoulder dislocation is pretty obvious. Right. The other ones are, can be a little bit more subtle. It's just pain. You know, the superior labral tear, you have, you know, you'll have a pitcher who will be like, I just feel like my velocity might be off. My accuracy might be off. But again, it, I, they have pain, but it's, they can still throw the ball. That's sort of like the vague one where it's you've got to, you know, again, the sloop here and posterior labor ones, like it just hurts. It doesn't have, it's not like it's unstable. And I would imagine that it can get difficult to, uh, you, you know, structurally you can help fix what the problem is or at least, you know, minimize the, the amount of um, issues that the, that, that individual is having. But if they want, you know, if, the, if they're like, all right, I think I really need this like procedure done. I can't perform the way I used to. What else can I do to get, you know, to get this fixed? And you may see them be like, ah, this person was 10 years older. I wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. I mean, you know? I don't you know. know. I, I, how's that? What is that like for you? Like, what, what goes through? What do you here's think Here's a couple of things. One, I try not to play the age game because yeah. I was like, you know, everyone is, I don't think it's fair because for like cuff repairs, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to fix a cuff tear on anyone over 60. I was like, why? There are some people who are 60 that act like a 40-year-old. And there are some people that are 40 that act like an 80-year-old. So, I mean, I think you got to treat the person, not really the – I don't really go, like, so dogmatic about the age. But I literally – I mean, we briefly talk about th talked about this before we started, but I don't look at my job as to tell someone what to do. There are very few indications where I said, you need surgery. I mean, if, if I think it, I'll tell them. But I look at my role as say, look, this is complex stuff. I've studied my whole life for this. This is what I do for a living. You don't know – anything about what we're talking about except for maybe what you read online and often that's the wrong thing right so i try to say my role is to help you make an informed decision about what's best for you so i you know i'll sit there and i usually explain you know what the underlying pathology is the pros and cons of surgery not having surgery conservative management 
where therapy fits in because despite what people often say, and I don't know what you hear on your end is, I'm like, therapy can work. You can get better, you know, with therapy. Not every single person needs to have surgery. Yep. So I sit there and I just try to go through them, and, and, and I would say, what are their expectations, what they're looking for? And I tell people all the time, I mean, one of my, my lines, I'm sure you have lines that you get sick of hearing yourself say, but one of mine is like, look, you can sit on the couch all day and probably be perfectly fine, but if that's not how you want to live, then there are things that we can do. I look, my job is to get you back to do the things you enjoy doing, whatever that is. You nailed it. I think that's uh, very well said. Is there anything you look for on an image where you're like, yeah, that's yeah, that's gonna that's gonna need it? And and how much do you depend on the image versus the, you know the presentation? So I usually have an idea of what's going on. Like we have a family friend who I was treating off the books this summer, and she played college softball. And I was like, I go, I, I was like, I think you've got a, a, a superior labral tear. And so we, we did all the non-operative stuff. Um, she did therapy. I gave her an injection. Uh, and then I said, I usually tell people, look, the point of the image is not to confirm what you have. The point of the image is because you failed conservative management and we're discussing surgery. And the image is going to help me surgically to explain how involved the surgery is going to be. Sure. So usually by the time we get the MRI, I already know what's going on, or at least I think I know what's going on. And it's just confirming it because we need surgery and let's discuss what we're going to do. So I, to me, I, I don't really use the imaging. There, I mean, sometimes you're like, I just don't have a clue. And like, you know, let's get the MRI and see what's going on. Problem is, I don't know if it's on your end as well. The problem is, again, in today's day and age, people watch Sports Center and they get confused. They see like, he got hurt. He has an MRI. I'm like, that's not how the real world works. I mean, it's different with a professional athlete because, again, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars, and the MRI doesn't cost them anything. You know, the average person who's got an insurance company, their insurance company <laughs> says there are certain things you have to do before you can get an MRI. So you sort of got to, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I, I work in the parameters that the insurance company allows me. Right. And, and so do we. So, so for us, uh, you know, and probably same for you, an MRI supports the procedure you're about, to, you know, it pretty much tells the insurance company, hey, listen, this is what's going on. This is why we're going to fix it because right. of what this image says. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, and there are, there are asymptomatic findings all the time, right? You all may the time. find, okay, this person is presenting with a, their their infraspinatus has to be shut. Like they can't even hold their arm up, right? Like it's it's just dropping. They have positive for drop arm, but you know it comes up that there's a labral tear. I I get that there's a labral tear there, but that that's not even. We can't even get to that being an issue because you can't lift your arm up high enough to, you know, impinge on that. So well, I told my friend today because she called me. We went over MRI on the phone today, and I was like, oh, she does, she does. She has a, a superior posterior labral tear, and I was like, oh, you can't. She's like, yeah. So you kind of know what you're talking about. I was like, ah, you know, a little bit. (laughs) And she's like, what about my clavicle? I go, forget about your clavicle. Because it said that, you know, her clavicle was lighting up. I said, I go, any person who is an athlete who works out, is their clavicle is going to light up. It just does. The clavicle is probably the most common thing. There's two things that we see every time. The clavicle and a superior labral. And what do you say? What do you see with the clavicle when you say light up? Oh, it lights up because it's like osteolysis, meaning there's like, so anyone who bench press, like I always tell people, look, in full disclosure, I do these things, so I'm not telling you not to do them. But the worst <laughs> things you can do for your shoulders are bench press and shoulder press. Yep. Because it's a horrible stressor. And so when the clavicle, quote, lights up, it just means there's inflammation in the clavicle. But just because an MRI shows it doesn't mean it's actually the pathology. Right. So well I think said. that's the difference where, you you know, you need someone to kind of be like, all right, yes, the clavicle lit up or the superior labor, you know, lit up. But it's your rotator cuff. That's That's the issue. It's not, you know. Don't forget about that stuff. So correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you gather 
a majority of your diagnosis comes from what you do in the, in the eval room, right? What you what you find clinically and their history. Right? Well, one of my mentors, and one of be might, might be a line on my page because I think I've said it before. Is one of my mentors said it? You know, ninety percent of your diagnosis will come from what the patient tells you. If you just listen, that was on there. If you just <laughs> listen, they'll tell you like what it is. Um, they usually will give you the clue, and then you do your exam, and it kind of confirms it. Now you know you still have. Okay, I had a woman today. I think she was a little upset with me, but, but I said, look, I don't know what's going on. But her MRI was normal. Her nerve study was normal. I'm like, every test has been normal. I'm not saying you're. I'm not saying you're not having pain. I just don't have an answer for it. And I think that's okay to say you just don't know. Amen. Thank you for saying that. I say that all the time. I'd rather tell you I don't know. Like I'm sure you hear this all the time. When can I get back? <laughs> you already asked your physician. Now, now you're going to ask me. I'm going to tell you the same thing. I hope your physician said. I have no idea. <laughs> but but when I when I do know. You're going to be the first to find out. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. But for me to put an unrealistic expectation out there isn't isn't appropriate. For you to make up some, you know, yeah. and it's hard. I mean, I, that's not fair. I think there's the misconception that, and I'd love to say that, like, I think that we're really good at what we do from like the surgical side to the therapy side. But in the reality, of the situation is not everything that goes wrong you're going to get back 100. percent I mean, I tell people, again, again, the cliche of the orthopedic surgeon who hurt themselves, and that's how I ended up in it. But I, I broke my wrist when I was a freshman in high school. My wrist has never worked the same ever since. I have limited range of motion. It hurts. And I was 15 years old, and I didn't have surgery. So, you know, I try to tell people, look, I had age on my side. I didn't have surgery, and it's, but it's never been normal. My job is to get you as good as I can. I don't guarantee you're going to be normal. And I think I sometimes so much people involved. forget that. They just, they just think like, but you, what, what can you do? And I was like, unfortunately, it's, you know, again, whatever you believe in, you're as good as you are when you're born. And my job is to try to help you get back. But it's hard for me to make, to make you perfect. And there's, there's so much that goes into it mechanically from, I mean, from a, even like a, um, like a neuro perspective. I'm sure you deal with that a ton at the sh- with the shoulder. I mean, yeah. clear the neck, right? You got yeah. you got to clear the thoracic spine. It's, it's not a. It's well, I'm not sure it's the easy. same for you. I mean, you get someone who has an ACL by the same surgeon, probably done the same way, and you're like, you do that. You have your protocol, and you do it, and you're like, you have, you know, kid A who does amazing, and kid B does fine, but he's not as kid A, and, you know. And you just like, I don't, I, I wish I could explain it, I, you know. It's it is interesting, right? And and some people are more lax than others, and yeah. and so forth. So. All right, so that wraps up our first episode. Part one of part two is now complete with Dr. Kearns. We dove into a little bit of everything from from sports medicine injuries, common injuries that he sees in the clinic, from Tommy John surgeries up through shoulder injuries. We got into his background a little bit as well. So stay tuned for part two where we dive a lot deeper into different types of surgeries, uh, who's appropriate, who's not appropriate, some of the recoveries, and uh, other processes along that, those lines. Thanks for listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It would mean so much to me if you could leave us a five-star review so more listeners like you could get this important information. See you next time.